I remember very little about the ride itself, about entering the terminal and even checking in. As someone who can tell you everything about the people, places, and things I interact with during a day, it's odd to not be able to recall any faces or details. Most of what I can remember is Alistair. The feel of his hand in mine, the warmth of his thigh against my leg, his fingers barely touching the back of my neck as we walk. We're a twosome, and nothing else exists. Clearest of all is the moment when I stepped away from him and tore our union asunder. We were approaching security, and I felt something inside my cunt tell me that it was time. The pressure building as we approached the line. It was here that I would drop him. It was time to begin the next part of the game. I remember stealing myself and squeezing his hand one last time. Then I squared my shoulders and took a deep breath, setting my mouth in a straight, resolute line. Turning towards Alistair, I ordered him to shut the fuck up, simultaneously delivering a swift, firm backhand to his tender ball sack. His sudden intake of breath rang out across the battlefield like a shot fired, and I swear I could feel the world hold still with a reverence reserved for moments like these. And the final clash in a long, bitter war finally begins. The end is upon us, one way or another. As the silent vibrations around us faded into oblivion, I popped in my earbuds and dropped my sunglasses across my face. I can still see his eyes sparkling at our game as I shut that wall between us for the very last time. His delight starkly in contrast to my own cursed knowing. I know where we go from here, but still, he does not. I am alone. In my shuttered space, totes slung across my shoulder, passport at the ready. I remember lifting my glasses for the security agent, but I have no idea whose face I stared into. My sight was blank. I was buried inside of myself, slipping each thread away from Alistair, my attention occupied below deck. Beneath my skin, I unweave and unwind and release from them. My body moves without me present, a creature of habit, animate but not animated. I'm dressed all in black, from my sandals to my jeans to my silk blouse, and with my inconspicuous motions of habit to a discerning eye, I may appear to be nothing more than a crew member on a theater set, sneaking out into the darkness to move some of the larger pieces without distracting from the real scene. I create more distance as we pass through the metal detectors, so by the time we're putting our shoes back on, we're sitting across from each other as complete strangers might. I see him. But he's as blank and empty as every other face. Uninteresting and unremarkable. Just another man I stare right through. As we walk towards the gate, though, I can feel his eyes on me. It's like they're breathing down my neck. Just as they stayed on me when we walked through that hardware store on our way to meet Eli. It feels like so long ago, but for all intents and purposes, it's been but an instant. At best, we could be called a brief interlude of time. Like a newborn baby, our relationship is still too small to be counted in anything but weeks. Arriving at the gate, I quickly scan my options to find a deep seat by the window calling out to me. I always prefer to sit near windows, no matter where I am. 
You should know that by now. Settling in to enjoy both the view and the reflections in the glass, I leave my silent earbuds deep in my ears. They serve as a ward, keeping people from talking to you. But more interestingly, they also keep people from noticing that you are listening. Combine that with staring out the windows and analyzing the layers of stories in view, and you have something that could practically constitute a full pastime. When I was learning to slip between the worlds, practicing being invisible, I would often while the time away in this manner, listening to conversations next to me, developing backstories for my characters as they rambled, proving and disproving my hypotheses as the conversations rolled on and on. The habit started long before then, though. I've been a voyeur since birth. In my younger days, I would spend hours in the sketchiest of cafe booths, draining cup after cup of the free refills of rancid drip coffee, trying to capture the perfect poem as it rolled off the surface of my daydreaming mind. My pen would cross and recross word after word as the lines fell flat and cascaded around me like rotting barn timbers, and I'd distract myself from my own desperation by listening to the people around me. Quite similar to the way I dip into their worlds now, in fact, as their pizza delivery girl. Today, though, I have a specific piece of prey to keep my eye on, at least until my next play becomes clear. Wait, watch, and then move. It's always been this way. I'm turned toward the window, watching the planes and little worker bees shuttle themselves around on their backdrop. And in the reflection, I can see that Alistair has settled himself nearby. A fair bit away, but nevertheless turned directly towards me, as though I was the sun. I can feel his eyes on me still, watching me as I watch him in the reflection. But I remain motionless, a sniper who gives no indication of the connection. Instead, I ride across my breath like a butterfly on a flower petal and watch the bustling outside. I allow the chirping conversations to whirl around me until one verbals up and catches my attention. Parents from another country, speaking a language that sounds to my untrained ears much like Dutch. I adjust my gaze away from Alistair and find two round and happy children, toddling back and forth in matching outfits, all in time to the twittering symphony that I'm tracking. Although from their dress it's clear that one is a girl and one is a boy, their similar size and demeanor, as well as the identical patterns echoing across these clearly gendered styles, leaves me with the singular impression that these two are a matched set, like salt and pepper shakers, twins. I swivel slightly to find the mother and father, smiling at the children from nearby and gently touching each other's hands, and I can feel what they're feeling. These children were both long-awaited and most appreciated, despite the obvious disadvantages of double responsibility. I feel a sharp pang in my abdomen as another memory rises unbidden, filled by the energies of this strange moment of now. I'm filled by Richard, always Richard. While it's true that I have no children, at one time I was pregnant. It began as an accidental oversight. We had gone out of town and I had left my makeup bag on the dresser. This bag also happened to contain my birth control prescription. Richard assured me all would be well. I can remember to this day the calm, soothing way he held my hand in his and told me to trust him. 
whatever happened, we would be just fine. In retrospect, that blasé reaction should have been my clue. Richard simply didn't want to turn around and head back home, nor did he wish to wear a fucking condom around his dick. But the fool that I was blindly assumed it was indicative of a grander symbolic shift. When he fucked me later on that night, knowing damn well I could get pregnant through our act, I thought our marriage was moving through a door into a new world, one where we could both be happy. I even had joyous tears streaming down my face by the time he started to spasm on top of me lost in the feeling of his cock tensing against my cunt and praying for the seeds of new beginnings to sprout their tender shoots and begin growing. I hid the tears from Richard, fearing his scorn for my sensitivity, but I learned soon enough that I would have been better served by showing him my weakness. It would have lit a fire underneath him, forcing the conversation and allowing me a glimpse of his true attitude about the situation. I never had a chance, though. At this point in our marriage, I was still so hopeful, so obedient. I never showed tears to him. Happy tears, sad tears. He treated them all the same. I was happy with something. He wanted a blowjob so he could channel my joy. If I was sad about something, I should beg him to lick my pussy as a treat. Once I had satisfied him or he, I, he expected freedom from any further obligation to my emotional well-being including anything that he deemed a bad attitude. When it came to the more sensitive levels of communication, we always defaulted to Richard's preferred method. Otherwise, I paid for it with more tears and more pain. After returning from overseas, the days passed, and eventually I determined that I was, in fact, late. Late in the very way that ladies whispered to each other in conspiratorial tones, coupled with meaningful looks at one another. I found myself elated and terrified all at once. At this point, my foolish heart still harbored the delusions that this would be a boon to our marriage. So I didn't think for even an instant to hide the results. I should have held them close to my chest, secret and safe in the warmth of my awakening mother's heart, safe in the dark recesses of my private belly, along with all of my other secrets. Instead, I celebrated the damn thing. I wrapped up that fucking pregnancy test in a gift box and presented it to him with his evening scotch. My eyes open and hopeful, I found myself again the lamb walking to its slaughter. Naturally, though, Richard acted as though all was well. He's never the type to let a surprise show, or one to let someone put one over on him. I noticed, however, that over the next few weeks his temper flared more often than not. And when it flared... It took hold and burned like a raging wildfire over the grasslands, taking down everything in its path. I desperately threw whatever I could on top of the flames, at least hoping to slow its path of destruction. While I was trying my best to keep Richard calm, I was also grappling with horrific nausea and bone-deep exhaustion, both of which I swore existed only in my own head. But calling them delusions didn't quell any of the symptoms themselves, and to make matters worse, I found Richard becoming more and more unpredictable. His brain cycled faster and faster with each passing day, fueling his rage to a nuclear level. I began to fear him in a way I never had before. He was too strong, and there were too many things I needed to protect for us. Our families, our home and our security, his work, 
the people that pass for friends in our world. So I threw myself in front of him over and over, at times even consciously baiting him, offering myself a sacrifice. I would do anything to protect the rest of the world that we inhabited together. I depended on that world for survival. It was a world full of things and people that I loved. And somewhere along that tortured path, the desperation and hopelessness grew too thick to see through, and I lost track of who I was completely. Shortly thereafter, I lost our baby. My mind and body never recovered, and a piece of me never forgave myself, until I escaped. Now when I think of the one that I lost, it's with peace instead of regret. I know now that she would have been far too fragile for the world I was bringing her into. In the end, Richard would have destroyed us both. At the very least, I would never have dared to leave his side. Protecting her from him would have been more important than my own life. He and I would have been together until the end, for better or for worse. What a different world that would have been. I tell myself that I made the choices I had to make, and my world is a better place because of them, but where am I now? Hopping on a plane with a man I met delivering a pizza following him to a job interview that has nothing to do with me. Oh, and degrading both he and myself in the process. Is this a life to be sought after? I'm not sure. While it may be free, I have yet to determine if it constitutes good. This particular sidebar has left me aimless, erasing the game entirely from my mind for however many moments I've been lost on memory lane. My mind keeps wandering more and more as we proceed, and these ever-increasing slips serve as another kind of clue. A signpost, understood only in retrospect, pointing our way directly towards the end. I can feel my saboteur working against me deep inside, putting up blocks and trying to stop me from reaching escape velocity with my wild mind. And these mile markers of distraction keep coming faster and harder, signaling a rising acceleration to the game. Another point of no return is on its way. I have no doubt that Alistair is struggling with one and the same. Perhaps our two shadows have met on the other side of the veil, joining forces in their quest to keep us here. The real quest, though, is for something else altogether. Proving our value to our own hearts is always the ticket to well-earned freedom. This visual shift into an us-versus-them mentality, with Alistair and I on one side and our shadowy selves setting up challenges on the other, links me directly back into our twosome. Connected again to Alistair's energy field, I can feel myself dropping back onto the game board with a thump. I can also feel him tugging against me, pulling me onwards through these currents of distraction. We both know that we can't stop now. We can leave no business unfinished on our way towards the clearing at the end of our path. So we walk, hand in hand, or more accurately, hand on cock and hand on cunt, as it has been since the beginning. For the first time since we parted spheres, I feel a primal urge to really see him to bask in his glow for even just a moment. So I lean down and make a show of checking my bag, deliberately turning my face towards him in the process. Despite our sunglasses obscuring the view, I'm moving so slowly that I can feel a tremor deep in my cunt at the exact moment our eyes meet. I feel the pull. I can feel the shock course down through him too, 
In my mind's eye, I even see his pants twitch. I don't need to see it happening to know that it's true. I smile at the tremor, a look of friendly camaraderie that morphs into a sly smile of appreciation, one which is anticipating all the pleasures still to come. Alistair smiles back at me, and as though this was a key turning a lock somewhere and setting off the silent signal for the watchers, a man suddenly appears, as if from nowhere, and sits down right next to me. To my surprise, he ignores my earbuds, addressing me directly and calling immediate attention to the smile that is still sitting on my face. To an outsider, I imagine I look like the cat that got the cream. You certainly look more entertained than I with the sad state of affairs in this bloody airport. Truth be told, I know in an instant exactly what he means, despite its disguise as an ice-breaking shared complaint between strangers. Airports are a sad state of affairs when compared to what they used to be. From the looks of this man, he's been around the block for more than enough years to retain fond memories of at least a few of the joys that used to await us at these very same gates. Hordes of visitors eagerly awaiting their reunions with loved ones or saying goodbye for the last time. Far from the madding crowd that surrounds us presently, that crowd pulsed with everything all at once. The true forces of love, pain of separation and joy of reunion screaming in concert. Some lovers sobbing, clutching against each other in a final embrace. Others running towards each other on wings of delight, wrapping their arms around each other's corporeal form, celebrating their forms colliding after such a long absence from one another. The energies pouring off their bodies at the gates and at baggage claim, combined with the anticipation building everywhere in between, filled the airports with magic and motion. Back then, they were places full of power. Now, they are lifeless and stagnant. The energies sit like a stale layer cake, the frustration and exhaustion separated by thick layers of victimization and wounds, irritability dusted across the top like powdered sugar. Workers, customers, and even the visitors who have been waiting in the cell phone lot to get their call all stew in the tepid, humid slog of nothingness. There is still joy here, but it's small, and it hides. Nothing is like it used to be here, but most especially not at these damn gates. My deeper understanding of the words that are coming out of the stranger's mouth piques my curiosity so I can't help but humor him for at least a few moments. Besides, from what I can see out of the corner of my eye, something about his form intrigues me on a completely different level. He has solid shoulders, and his chest is barreled and burly in the way older men's do when they finally leave all traces of the childhood waif behind. Men like these are swollen with strength and filled to bursting with their own forces of masculinity. I note his accent, but... More importantly, his crisp yet self-deprecating delivery. Something akin to those damned Monty Python skits my brother used to watch and emulate over and over again, morphing his thick southern accent into something far too proper for the heat that lay across our land. That heat was as thick as the air that now surrounds me at this gate, and the vocal delivery of this man is just as out of place. Amusingly, my mind conjures an image of the man beside me clopping coconuts together and grinning in much the same way he smiled when he spoke to me. 
This is a man who doesn't care whether I hear him or not. He's already thoroughly amused with himself in the most sustainable and self-satisfied of ways. I turn to assess him, moving my attention towards his clothing as I swivel. He's well-tailored. The sheen on his faintly checkered blue suit screams money, and the pale orange shirt cuff that emerges from the jacket displays a matching blue monogram. R-N-D. A pocket square completes the look, brightly colored in a tangle of blues, oranges, greens, and yellows. It all seems far too cheery for such a dull, lifeless plane ride, but next to the warmth on this man's smile, it couldn't be a more appropriate accessory. He has a grin that leaves the audience feeling as though they've missed hearing the joke. Or even worse, that the joke was heard but flew straight over their heads. His hands are well manicured, and while I don't see any wedding ring, I can't help but notice his large gold watch that screams money in a far different way than the sheen on his suit and his custom monograms. This watch demonstrates a level of class that cannot be bought, only earned. A signal to me that this is a man sitting next to me not a boy masquerading as one. His hair is thick, despite its white color. A good head of hair is really the only thing a man can ask for as he ages, isn't it? Poor things can't use makeup or fillers with quite the same freedom of women when it comes to distracting from their degrading forms. A man simply asks for a good head of hair, strong arms, and confident legs. This man next to me has all of these. I smile at him and he smiles right back. As I feel his eyes meet mine through my sunglasses, a jolt runs down me, all the way into the tips of my toes. Pushing my sunglasses up into my hair, exposing my green eyes, I step into our conversation naked and vulnerable. This man can see right through me as easily as I can see through him, so there's no reason to wear them anymore. I pull out my earbuds and introduce myself. Alice, short and sweet. Reg, at your service. And with that, our game of conversational repartee begins. We've all played it before, haven't we? The basic punting back and forth of facts and random associations until a commonality is reached and the connection can hold its own. At one point, I mentioned that I'm planning to stop by the museum to visit the Rosetta Stone while I'm in London. I mean it, too. I've only seen it on the glossy pages of magazines and textbooks, but that stone has always fascinated me. A gateway into the understanding of so many different languages, all unlocked by the virtue of repetition. It's a metaphor in my eyes. What is life but excessive repetition of the same thing over and over in different languages? The whole contains the key to decode the Earth's purest language, and you can decipher the message of humanity in any of the myriad tones in which life speaks to you. To his credit, Reg allows me to ramble on for a moment, and then confesses that when he was younger, he considered himself a bit of a writer. He loves languages, too. As I return the volley with my own past confessions of the pen, we find our groove and settle into the easy banter now whiling the time away in the most effortless of fashions. But while we talk, I never allow myself to forget Alistair. How could I? I can feel my skin prickling and crawling as his eyes surveil me with hunger. So I keep my attention open, leaving a piece of me standing guard over Alistair's reflection. I know he's staring, unmoving, 
memorizing every face I make and the minutia of Reg and my interactions. Every time my hand brushes his jacket, Alistair takes note. When the trill and lilt of my convivial laughter floats across the space, I can feel Alistair tensing in his chair. This is a sound of Alice which he hasn't heard before. Reg strikes from a new direction, and his threat is novel. Alistair is now accustomed to the rhythms of my sexual banter, but this is something else entirely. It's different than how he felt watching me with Eli. I'm equally stimulated, but this Alice is new. Alistair doesn't know this me, and more importantly, he's never had this me. I realize in a flash that Reg is a piece of our story in as much a way that Eli was. This cheery man is my new tool, hand-delivered by the universe directly to the airport gate. This insight is coupled with a pull in my cunt that cheers me along as I step into the reality of the big picture. While I'm still not sure what this means quite yet, I do know that this man is here to help me. Through my wordy wandering, time continues her march, and Reg keeps drawing me out of my shell, playing me with such confident hands you'd think I was his own personal loot. It's almost a type of love-making, where my mind is the one moaning underneath him and whimpering for more. Your mind can pant and gasp, you know, and mine does, as he caresses it and stimulates it, teasing out things long forgotten and making it ache for more. We managed to talk about everything and nothing at all. Our reverence for Rumi, Reg is born of his wife who passed when his children were teenagers. Poetry, deep love, the beauty of words and pain and pain in words. Alistair has moved himself to a closer chair under the guise of moving towards the gate, but I know it's because he couldn't resist listening. I can feel his discomfort growing. In all the time we've spent together, we've never once talked about poetry, about literature, about my history, my intellect. Entire wings of my mind castle are still unexplored by him. He knew none of these parts of me, and his surprise lights a fire under his burning need and its jealous gaze. I'm not surprised, though. I've always been aware of how little Alistair actually knows me. In fact, I prefer it that way. It's safer for me, for him. Reg is different, though. I open naturally around him, like a flower turning towards the sun or lifting its head as it takes in rain from its roots. I can feel Alistair's jealousy turning with me, lifting its own head as I lift mine. It's coming back up to the surface, ready for a new kind of fight. Our boarding call suddenly blares through the speakers, jolting me back into my body again. Reg stands, offering his hand to me, and I'm left wondering if he assumes I'm in first class with him or is setting up a parting kiss on the hand like any good old-fashioned gentleman would. I don't let the confusion show on my face, though, nor do I spare even one glance for Alistair. I'm trapped in this courting ritual like a bird of paradise, blind to all watchers, cameras, and spies. Smiling shyly up at Reg, I take his hand allowing him to help me to my feet. I adjust my blouse, letting it drop low for a moment, showing just a fraction of the black satin, lace, and a mouth-watering swell of plump flesh to anyone who might be looking. 
I touch Reg's muscular arm in appreciation when he lifts up my tote to carry it onto the plane. Poor Alistair, sitting all by himself now in those disgusting pleather chairs. His skin sticking to it in places as he sweats in his designer clothes, waiting for his own call. He's left behind, rotting in the sunshine, abandoned by the lion who's chosen a fresh calf instead of the same old tough hunk of meat that's been sitting in the corner. I'd feel guilty, but I know his cock is throbbing against his zipper right now. The metal teeth are cutting into its sensitive head. He'll be afraid to adjust it until I've made it out of eyesight, though. He won't want to miss a moment of this pain. I know my Alistair. Gallantly, Reg offers me the crook of his arm, smiling with the precision that needles at me and sends my past rushing back in again. This time, though, it's just the face of a boy from the Citadel that I dated when I was younger. He had a move that tasted exactly like this one. So I ask Reg if he's served, and we're off to the races again allowing my disappearing act from Alistair's gaze to be buried beneath an all-new flurry of intense chatter. Upon making it to our seats, we discover we're sitting right next to each other. While Reg may be surprised, true to form, I am not. The odds were 100% after all. The heat of riding this universal fucking wave is rising off of me in clouds of steam. Through the rest of the boarding, Reg engages my gleeful mind with the adventures and misadventures of his military career. I learn he has seen many battles and has amassed a well-font of decorations in the process. I also know enough to read between the lines of awards and accolades to see that this man's amusing anecdotes are but the top layer of an onion, culminating in more than one demonstration of extraordinary bravery through the darkest nights of the mind, body, and soul. This is a man who would tell Alistair he was magnificent if he had been asked while delivering that pizza. Exactly as I had when this road started. This man understands surviving in the darkness and making your way out into the light time and time again. He can treasure the absurd and nearly paralyzing joy and beauty that's present everywhere around us. When nothing is wrong, to him, it's a time to rejoice. Reg understands the word magnificent is meant to be used at more times than the ones our mind deems worthy of celebration. I find myself opening more to him, my core warming in his hands, softening like putty or wax in his palm. This man's heart reminds me of my own, closed to only the deepest of visitors. He's uninterested in anyone occupying the space of pain another already resides within. And it's the openness in every other regard that somehow manages to balance out that small block with such extraordinary mass that stands at his very core. As he talks, the passengers continue to board behind my turned frame, and I can feel Alistair coming my way, his seekers of energy moving out desperately to reach my form, touching me on the shoulder and bringing me to awareness with more than enough time to prepare for the jolted shock and despair that hits when Alistair's own eyes finally find their mark. Watching Reg and I, sitting side by side, fuming. I turn away from Reg to adjust my seatbelt and follow the invisible line I can feel connecting Alistair and I and find his face exactly where it should be, rewarding him with a nod and a quick smirk at the corner of my mouth. I then turn my full attention back to the conversation at hand. 
It's an easy maneuver in actuality. My brain hasn't found a worthy comrade in longer than I can remember. The fascination I find in the places Reg takes me, the cerebral stimulation pouring off of me in waves, has created a new brand of torture for Alistair. An elevated land for an elevated game. I already know that Alistair doesn't have much further before finding his own seat. In fact, only a few feet separate the two of us. While the flimsy curtain that's waiting to be pulled once the plane is boarded may exclude him from my visage, it will not block out my energy, nor my laughter. And it most certainly won't keep him safe from the perfume I've worn without fail each and every day since we tangled ourselves up in each other. Alistair's nose is now trained to unique sensitivity and will notice every time the unique fragrance makes its way past him through the recycled air in the cabin. I lean down to rummage in my bag, turning my eyes towards him again. I want to see where he is. He'll be busy finding his own seat. For once, he won't be watching me, and for a few brief moments, I can be invisible to him. I notice a woman with a baby moving in my peripheral. The universe has been known to employ quite a sense of humor, so I can guess with another 100% likeliness. That small child is going to wind up right next to Alistair. It will be a noisy child that takes up all of his space, leaving him uncomfortable in his arousal and frustrating him even further. Alistair finally takes his seat, but right before I turn back towards Reg, I notice the much larger man that was following Alistair up the aisle, squeezing his giant form over Alistair's lap, forcing himself into the cramped space still available on the other side. Oh, what fun. If that baby goes where I believe it's heading, Alistair will have a delightfully American sandwich on his hands. What else would you find on a plane after all? As I watch the tense horror reflecting across his face, I can hardly control my laughter. I turn back towards Reg with a wholly authentic grin, thanking the gods that his amiable air assures no amusement on my face could possibly look out of place. I get to sneak one more peek at Alistair in his seat before we take off. Reg and I paused in conversation so he could finish business on his phone before turning off the signal. Digging in my bag aimlessly again, I shifted my gaze and discovered that baby exactly where I knew it would be. To add insult to injury, an older child is now sitting directly behind Alistair, old enough to require his own seat and old enough to bring a new method of psychic torture to the table. I get to watch Alistair's face start bouncing in a chaotic rhythm, and my appreciation for the universe's commitment to comedy swells even more. The child behind him kicking his seat is fucking hilarious and useful all at once. Just like the universe. Right now I want to feel what he's feeling so badly I can taste it. So I make use of the laughable predicament, building a manual connection between us using all of my other senses. I close my eyes, taking the mental image of Alistair as I have just seen him, and porting myself onto it, settling into his skin and falling deep inside of him. As I land, I can feel his chair underneath him, the kid's feet creating alternate pressure across his back. I even begin to smell the man next to Alistair. He must have eaten onions for dinner last night. It's positively leaking out of his pores. 
Underneath the onions, I started to make out a layer of sickly sweet. Bananas from the child, dried on its shirt and on the back of its hands. I think this was my imagination playing tricks on me, but I've spent years experimenting with this very technique, proving its veracity and efficacy to my own skeptic's mind over and over again. I have learned I can trust these tools with my life. You don't have to believe me. Just try it yourself sometime. Allow the truth to show itself to you. We're all a little magic after all, not just a special few. I dive deeper into the images, beginning to feel in my own groin the beating, pulsing cock in his pants. His balls are twitching underneath me. Then I catch a glimpse of his mind's eye. It's a vision of myself, stretched out, bucked out, being punished for all of this discomfort I've caused. That's my Alistair, but exactly. My curiosity sated, I turn my body back to Reg. He's packed himself away and moved his gaze to the window. Assessing the current between us, I find it solid and amiable. What it lacks is erotic friction. And I'm going to require that for where Alistair and I go from here. I need to play the game that I'm here to play, no matter how welcome this conversation has been to my parched mind and soul. None of this is about me. This is Alistair's journey. I can't lose sight of that damned fact. The universe has placed Reg in my path, so he must have his own role to play in our game. It's time to find out what that is. So I stretch my legs out a little, pulling up my blouse to adjust my seatbelt. Innocuously, but not innocently. It's a test. Exposing a single strip of skin, a glimpse of my abdomen above my waistband. The diamond that sparkles in my belly button catches in the stark artificial light of the aircraft, sending off a single warning shot. With military precision, Reg's eyes respond, tracking me and locking the image into the moment. His attention on me in that manner, even briefly, hits me in my cunt. That was a man's attention. I know that feeling. Reg takes a deep breath then, moving his gaze back to the window not lingering on me for even a moment longer than the thing naturally lasted. Curiouser and curiouser indeed. A plan springs to mind, fully formed in a flash. I think it's high time to don the habit of nervous Nellie, leaning into the polarities between a man and a woman. I grab my bag one final time, this time pulling it into my lap and making a proper production of digging through it. My naughty little fingers find the case I'm looking for three times before I actually pull it out into the light. A small box with a mechanical lid. It features a colorful Alice in Wonderland motif. Richard bought it for me to hold all of my pills. Back in the day, he had me convinced I was simply frail and crazy, not abused, tortured, and desperate. These days, the case features a more traditional lineup of pain relievers, allergy medicines, and other bland baubles but it will serve me well with these limited contents. Reg is already in tune with my body. He just proved that. So all I need now is a signal both subtle and perceptible. I began to tap my toes in my sandals, simulating a gradually increasing agitation. Reg's eyes dart towards them almost immediately. Good man. He remains there, 
admiring my neat pedicure and sparkling toe rings, catching on to the rising cadence of tremors running through my body. All of that stress contained in such an appealing package. He can't help but get hooked. He's a fish on my line. I can feel him buttress himself against my energy, snapping into protector mode. His hand reaches across the armrest to touch my own, and as soon as he makes contact, I lower my eyes, feigning shame. Then I begin to whisper in a shaking cadence, quietly confessing my extraordinary fear of flying. Funnily enough, the statement used to be true. Back before Richard, at least. Now nothing scares me anymore. That makes me sound too brave. The real truth is that everything still scares me, perhaps even more than it did before Richard. But nothing can make enough fear bubble up inside of me to stop my feet from continuing their march. For the sake of this spell, though, I reach deep into my vault, taking the bell jar off the screaming little girl who used to claw her own hands bloody every time the plane went up in the air. She bubbles up to the surface like a dead fish, ready for the spotlight, and takes the reins from my hands. Now I hear her own trembling whisper confess the true horrors of this moment. She doesn't have any of her meds. I'm so immersed in this piece of myself that I can feel the tears pooling at the corners of my eyes and the cool path that one traces as it makes its way down the side of my face, splashing onto my hand that's clutching at my thigh with fright. How fucking poetic. I know men can become flustered when faced with my quivering form. I'm quite lovely when I'm only slightly hysterical. It makes my face flush and my eyes shine in such a way that the green turns almost yellow. When they're like that, they're intoxicating, pleading desperately with anyone who looks upon them, telling them that I need protection. While it may be wildly dangerous when walking around the city late at night, right now it's precisely the tool I need. And to my delight, Reg doesn't fluster at all. He simply holds my hand steadily and with no tremors, absorbing and grounding the fear that pulses off of me. It's impressive, to say in the least. The scared little girl who's speaking for me asks him in her meek little voice if we can sit together with our eyes closed until the pilot gives the all-clear signal. Reg agrees without hesitation, shutting his eyes and laying his head back against his seat his compliance allowing that scared little girl to relax into my own chair quite naturally. I can feel gravity pulling me down as she closes my eyes and releases a shaking breath in its entirety. The deed is as good as done now. I take back the reins, thanking my old friend in fear, and lock Reg and I inside of a silent bubble, focusing on the energy centers in our hands pressing against one another. In this way, we're practically one already. I now need to fill our space slowly, breathing and oozing sex from every pore in my body, just like that man oozing onion all over Alistair's dress shirt. Incrementally and lazily entering the territory of the erotic and diving deep until we're fully encased in its warmth. Like that frog in the pot of boiling water. Bubble, 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 until the deed is done.
So I steady myself on my breath, completely ignoring everything but the sensations of the cool air moving in and out of my nostrils, blocking out all sounds, smells, and even tastes, drilling down into the feeling of the air, moving in, moving out. After only a minute or so of this, I drop straight into a new level of consciousness. It's a strange sensation if you've never experienced it before. You almost feel like you're about to collapse. And on some level, that is what happens. If you can manage to hang on long enough and allow your eyes to roll and surrender to the drop, instead of the floor, you'll find yourself arriving at a new level within your interior. Deeper and higher all at once. I know that description may challenge your spatial constructs, but it's no matter. The place still exists. It's where you were seated. The thing that was here before your time began. Where you're inside yourself, but also so large in form that the world is a speck beneath you, lost in the surrounding stars. Sometimes, when I'm in this place, I can see myself sitting in a tower with mountaintops on all sides watching everything and breathing above the world and all that I know. It feels like the home of the gods. I begin to imagine myself sitting on those gleaming wooden beams. And once I can feel them warm and solid beneath me, I move my attention to my cunt. She's easy to find. She's so sore and swollen. In fact, she's been sore since the day Alistair really spoke to me for the first time. It's a good kind of sore. It helps me stay in touch with my erotic nature, the ache in my pussy linking me to the things that live deep inside. The dark things, twisted things, the pleasure and carnal animal lust. I tap into these now, caressing them with my consciousness, stretching them slowly, moving the attention up from my fiery cunt towards the warmth in my belly, holding there for just a moment. I move up to my chest, expanding the flames through the air of my breath and shifting them up to my throat. As soon as I reach my shoulder, I begin feeling Reg's warmth. His solid strength and the calm he exudes is tangible. The man has fashioned himself into a pillar for me. He's powerful, so I lean into him. While I feel the grief of losing his wife underneath the layers of military strength, I can go back even further from there to the man he was before her and the man he was with her. I can also feel the man he is today. I track my own fire to meet his strength, moving it across my right shoulder blade and towards the gentle downhill curve of my arm. Across my bicep, passing the crook of my elbow, then my wrist. The heat finally makes direct contact. Traveling from palm to palm, it starts a channel within him, burrowing its way up into his brain, then making its way back down his spine towards his cock, heating him up so I can see what kinds of alchemy we could create together. My next parlor trick is easy. All I do is remember. Remember what, you ask? Everything, all at once. Point your wild mind in a direction and then set it free. Watch it run across the land at a rapid clip, its feet barely touching the ground, and let the images and sensations fly past you at top speed. Here's what I see now. 
The first time I saw a cock. The first time I felt my pussy get a warmth of its own. The first time I touched my clit and felt the jolt run through my nervous system. The first time I brought myself to orgasm. And after, lying there, clutching at my pulsing cunt, legs locked around my hand as I quaked and gasped in wonder. I remember sticking things up inside of me just to see what they felt like. That time I went too far and broke my own hymen, staring open-mouthed at the blood that had appeared on the tip of the plastic pen cap. I remember fucking, the bleeding and ripping and screaming, but still begging for it to go on. Touching cocks, mouths on cunts. That first time a man kept his mouth on my cunt long enough to get me to come for him. Rubbing a clit that wasn't my own. Tasting someone who wasn't me. That first time there was more than one. And the second time. And the third. The first time I got fucked up the ass. The pain of it tempered by the delicious taste of violating some unspoken code. That first time I was naughty on purpose. And how delightful that punishment tasted. I keep rolling through the first in their wakes over and over again. The first bear the seeds that grow into the fruits of your sex. Your seeds of eroticism, of want and desire. They can move your life force if you let them. So I do. Pushing these seeds of beginnings down my arm and through my hand, I feel myself tingling and my breathing growing heavy. But I feel something else now too. I feel Reg responding, his own breath deepening. There's a tingle between our palms now where the energy is meeting and forming their new interplay. I move my hand slightly, allowing my fingernail to gently scratch against the center of his own palm, imagining the caress against my own skin and pumping up the heat in my cut. I keep it light, playful, teasing him in the midst of the crowd. We may be sitting almost motionless, but he can feel me getting hotter and hotter by the second. And I can feel him, too. He adjusts himself a little in his chair, and I use the opportunity to move my hand, still clutching his, directly onto his thigh. I'm closer to his cock now. I can feel the heat radiating from it. I let out a gentle sigh of contentment, practically a squeak a noise that speaks of finding solace, of feeling safe once more. I used it with Richard, of course, but the men who I was with before him were the ones who told me about the sound's power. By the time I hit Richard's doorstep, it was already in my tool belt, clearly marked with purpose. It's for that reason, in fact, that I will always be grateful to the men that came into my early life. In those days, we all felt less fear and more curiosity. They would openly delight in the magic, pointing the way to exactly where all of my powers were kept. I was so open to learning that I fucking learned everything I could. I wanted to be the best after all. So by the time I ended up in Richard's grasp, I understood my craft enough to hold my own with the professionals. What I didn't understand yet were the dangers involved when a young girl steps out of the sandbox and into a true battleground. In response to my squeak, I feel Reg's grip tense. His palms start sweating slightly, leaving us slippery between our fingers in the creases where we connect. 
My hands were already warm. They usually are these days. And the time before, they were as cold as ice, the tips of my fingers betraying the slow death of my body under Richard's command. I glide my own hand up and down against Regis, breathing my cunt into his heart. I encounter no friction and stay lost in the slipping and sliding until the sudden click of static and the crackly voice of the pilot cuts through our fog. The announcement that all are now free to move about the cabin seems laced with irony now. If only the pilot knew that I had been moving this entire time. On a completely different plane. Pun intended. Reg doesn't let go of my hand at the conclusion of the announcement. He sits poised, allowing me whatever space I need, making no assumptions. This man has the strength to pause on the edge of the precipice and wait as calmly as a mountain, as patiently as a forest of old growth. This man is a worthy comrade, sitting as far across the polarity as I do, and balancing my seesaw exactly. It's so tempting to keep hold of him, but that's exactly why he's so dangerous to my attention. I can't afford to get lost and forget about Alistair. For now, my own cunt needs to take a back seat. So I resume conversation and move back into my brain. And as luck would have it, Reg is a man who finds as much stimulation through his mind as he does his body. It's not surprising. I found that as my age grows, my tastes shift. The ones I now crave voraciously are the ones who not only touch my body in the ways that make me scream but also challenge my mind, twisting it up into Gordian knots. Richard challenged me, of course, but his way pushed against my soul like sandpaper against the most delicate of substances. While his friction may have left me smooth and strong, these days, I prefer stretching. Reg and I keep a steady clip of conversation for the rest of the flight. I've never found it difficult to make people talk, and I find it especially easy when I'm granted long stretches of time. I think I find those conversations the most interesting of all. The meandering roads I lead people down always seem to end in the darkest of dark and the lightest of light, full of confessions and admissions, sometimes for the first time in a lifetime. I can draw these things out of people effortlessly, like moths to a flame, simply by training my attention on them and coaxing them to unfurl. Turning my light on to Reg, I end up fascinated to the point of my own inebriation. I can feel heat continuing to rise up through me. I can hear my speech patterns quickening as I flutter about myself. I'm becoming more feminine by the moment in the presence of his polarity. At one point, I remember dragging myself away from our duo to inspect how Alistair was faring in the wilderness behind me. Under the guise of stretching my legs, I walked the entire cabin. As I slowly wandered past him, I let my eyes roam in a nonchalant fashion, catching what they could on the way. I managed to snag a vision of the outline of his cock, rock hard against his dress pants. But I caught his glare more through feeling than through my eyes themselves. On my return trip to my seat, Alistair risked turning to look at me. I rotated my own face to meet his, but I stared right through him, completely masked and completely oblivious, as though I still had on sunglasses. I can feel his rage roaring out of him like a hungry beast, the same rage I touched at our first real encounter. He knows now how much he loves the friction, 
That way I can ruffle his feathers and rub salt against his wounds. He craves me endlessly these days. Or at least he craves the flavor of our game. It's but a single piece of me, but I'm beginning to realize that it's the only one he will ever know. I'm not sure if that's a happy fact or a sad one. I do know that I choose to let go of that thought. Instead, I turn back to Reg and walk towards the sparkling fairy lights that dance around the meeting of our minds. When it's time to land, Reg silently offers me his hand. I slip my own into his, grateful to follow his lead, trusting in his confidence and the protection he offers, like I'm one of his little soldiers, a good girl being taken care of by her man. I close my eyes and enjoy the tension radiating between our palms, the way it turns all my senses to fire and sets me alight, pouring abundance from my pores. I choose not to let go of my grip when the wheels touch the ground. And while we sit there with our hands clasped, Reg clears his throat. He asks me where I'm going after this and if I'm interested in company. Most interestingly, he offers up his home to me. What he thinks he's offering is a chance for me to have an off-the-beaten-path adventure, but he's actually giving me a choice that determines how Alistair and I will proceed in this game. This game that I'm playing right underneath Reg's nose. I do know that one way or another, I will be seeing Reg later. I can tell that he's important to whatever comes next. The question is, how far am I willing to go in my abandonment of Alistair? I could disappear right now. A dramatic blow to begin the final round. But the game could be played with a slower burn. More of the familiar trope in a new setting and slowly turning up the heat. It's always the choice, isn't it? How quickly do you heat up that frog in the pot? How much firepower do you spend on the initial move? That answer will determine whether Alistair finds himself checking into our hotel with me or without me.